Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we have a great podcast lined up for you. My guest today is Professor Lewis Dartnell, who is an astrobiology research scientist at the University of Westminster. Lewis has worked extensively in space exploration, notably on the ESA's Mars ExoMars mission, which is due to land, I believe, in 2022. He has written several books, the most recent of which is the Sunday Times bestseller Origins, which discusses how the Earth shaped human evolution and history. His second most recent book, The Knowledge, is about the knowledge we would need to rebuild our world after an apocalypse, after an Armageddon-type situation. We had a really interesting conversation about human history, the NASA Perseverance mission, which landed uh, on Mars two nights ago, the potential for life in the solar system, and how we might get definitive proof of that, and many other things. It's a really interesting one. Loads of uh, things to learn on this one. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Give it up for Lewis Darnell. Lewis has the best job of anyone I've ever heard. He gets to write these <laughs> amazing books from perspectives that no one has really come at before. Big history, whatever you want to call it. And then the, the kind of preppers Bible, probably not the right way to describe the knowledge, but this, this really exciting uh, premise of, you know, what we need to, to rebuild the world in the event of, apoco- of an apocalypse or on yeah. um, So really fun books there that you get to sort of travel around the world pitching. Uh, And and then in addition to that, as if that wasn't enough, you're an astro, you're a professor of astrobiology. (laughs) It's like, you know, it just sounds like the best situation. Obviously the grass is always greener, but it just was like, wow, that's so cool. I think really enjoyed the books, obviously. Origins particularly, I recommend everyone to check this out. Uh, There are just so many facts that you just hadn't, so, so I defy anyone to read this book and not learn something new. Today, I actually had to go online just to check again a, c- a couple of the facts. One in particular was camels started in North America. I never... Yes, true fact. Yeah, fantastic. So, and I think it's it's actually, it feels like this should be something for, that should be on the school syllabus origins, really. I think kids should start out and know this information and, you know, as a basis before they, get, they go out into the world. So thank you for that. Obviously, the book is about how Earth shaped human history, how the geography and geology of the planet helped to shape the way we evolved as human beings. I guess the first question would be, why was it that Africa, obviously known as the cradle of civilization, why was it that our oldest known ancestors formed there and and not somewhere else? Why did it happen in, in, in East Africa? Yeah, this is one of the kind of you know, big mysteries, big things that people were trying to work out over recent decades to do with our own origins, you know, the, the origin of us as a species, the, the evolution of humans as particularly intelligent and versatile and adaptable and language using, tool using creatures. And we've known for a while that um, a whole of that evolution happened in Africa and, and mostly in fact in East Africa. East Africa is the cradle of us as a species, and not just Homo sapiens, but um, all the other, many other um, branches on the hominin evolutionary tree, all our sort of um, human-like sibling species 
um, had a lot of history in East Africa as well. And, and indeed, I did myself. I grew up in Nairobi um, as a student at a school called the Banda, which was, it was Swahili for, for Mud Hut. I went to the Mud Hut School in, uh, in, in Kenya, in Nairobi. Wow. And what seems to have, have been happening in, in this region of the world over the last five, six million years, which is the evolutionary history since we diverged from chimpanzees, when we have, have been evolving from hairy, tree-swinging, ape-like creatures into naked, hairless, upright, uh, bipedal, uh, upright-walking, human-like species, is that primarily the, the, the area of East Africa, the region, had to dry out. You have to transform rainforest into dry grassland, into the savanna. And principally, that's been driven by, by colossal earth movements, by a huge tectonic upheaval where East Africa and the Ethiopian highlands has been rising up, um, almost, almost literally like a zit swelling up on the face of the earth, um, swelling up from a deep mantle plume, rising up from, from deep in the interior of the earth. And that has also ripped open the skin of the planet itself to create the Rift Valley, the, the great East African Rift Valley. And it's within that crack in Earth's surface that a huge amount of our evolution has been driven because the landscape of the Rift Valley interacting with other planetary features, with wobbles and Earth's uh, axis and our orbit around the sun, these are the so-called Milankovitch cycles of the climate, have created periods of really unstable, chaotic, climactic conditions uh, in the Rift Valley. And so we evolved our big brains, we evolved our high levels of intelligence in order to outthink a chaotic, unpredictable environment. It, it, was, it was the planetary forces coming together in East Africa that crafted us as a species in that way. Yeah, because tectonics are particularly important. You, got, you speak about it a few times in the book. Uh, um, there are several interesting examples. One is the Mediterranean, the north of the Med versus the south. Mm. Can you just uh, talk a bit about that? The, the reason why they're more, I guess the Carthage was, uh, uh, and um, Cairo, uh, Cairo, obviously on the, um, or Alexandria, forming towards the north there as on the southern side but on the, yeah yeah but not not much aside from that really yeah plate tectonics is one of the recurring themes they come back to again and again throughout origins but because it has had a huge influence on the shaping of the world that we evolved in that we find today and therefore in the molding of civilizations and societies and empires throughout the whole history of, of human civilization and one of the hotspots of, of human cultures and human societies in our part of the world has been the Mediterranean, this oval, uh, almost sort of mouth-shaped um, inland sea. I'm all familiar from, from history lessons and documentaries on TV of, of, of this bubbling um, vigour of different cultures around the Mediterranean of, of the Phoenicians and the Minoans and the Carthaginians and ancient Greeks and the Mycenaeans and the Etruscans and the Romans. But when you think about it, the vast majority of that human activity has been happening along the North shore, the North coastlines of the Mediterranean 
and not the southern lip. And, and the two halves, the, the two coastlines of Mediterranean are very, very close to each other, very easy to sail between. But there's, but there's been this great disparity throughout history between the north and south coastlines of Mediterranean. And even this comes down to plate tectonics and continental drift. And since the breakup of the last great supercontinent uh, called Pangaea, the all land, and the, the tearing open of this supercontinent into the land masses that we'd be familiar with and recognize today. Uh, Africa and then India have also been riding north to recollide back into Eurasia. And this crumpled up mountain ranges from the Himalayas to, to the Alps. But the fact that it's been the continent of Africa that has been colliding into Eurasia and it's Africa that's being subducted and is disappearing, it's sliding beneath Eurasia and being destroyed in this broiling heat of Earth's interior, has crumpled up the North European, the North Mediterranean coastline into this really intricate coastline of lots of archipelagos of tiny islands and coves and inlets and bays and natural harbors. And it is plate tectonics that's created this environment that's ideally set up for seafaring societies for trade and communication and moving people and, and things around. Whereas the southern lip of the Mediterranean, the African coastline, which is being subducted and destroyed, is very flat and monotonous and boring in comparison and is bereft of natural harbours. It, it is not welcoming of seafaring nations. And pretty much the only, only exceptions that you mention there, Ben, are Alexandria and the ancient Egyptian civilization huddled along this linear oasis of the River Nile flowing through the, the, the desert. And Carthage, which was founded by the Phoenicians in pretty much the only natural harbour along, you know, a thousand miles of, of coastline of North Africa. And, and Carthage came to challenge that the might of the Romans before losing the, the Punic Wars and, and being obliterated, being literally wiped off the face of the map. But it's, it's nonetheless been this pattern of north versus south across the Mediterranean that has been dictated. All that human history has been deeply influenced by planetary forces, by, by continental drift and the geographies that that's created. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And I mean, that's obviously the, the theme of the book and, and recurs throughout. But just to, um, for people who are perhaps aren't aware of the, the, the massive timescales here, and obviously this is very, um, big history as it were, or a uh, very macro view of things. Uh, just to run through, and correct me if I'm wrong, but so obviously the, the universe was formed about 13 and a half billion years ago. Seven million years ago, human lineage broke off from chimps into separate, uh, started to take their separate paths. Three million years ago, you have the early hominins appearing, roughly three million years ago. Um, and then this is the time three, I guess that's what the time where you, you were initially talking about, about the, in the Rift Valley, when the, the environment was changing so, uh, so much from, from not just season to season, but say over hundreds of years that people had to adapt and the um, process of evolution was accelerated. So that would have been say 200, would that have been correct to say that was sort of from th 3 million years ago, would that be right? Yeah, so it was the universe itself was formed around 14 billion years ago, and Earth and the solar system was formed around four or five billion years ago. But the the more recent 
history of, of humanity has been firstly when we split from our last common ancestor with, with chimpanzees uh, maybe seven million years ago. And a lot of um, more recent evolution has been within that great East African Rift Valley. It, it has been a process over several million years of the splitting open of Earth's crust beneath our feet you know, in, in the region we were already living in. Yeah, because it's just these time periods are just incredible to mm. think about. And, and another point that you make in the book is um, about the Carboniferous. So I think that was 320 million years ago. Yeah. Um, and the way that the, the that process during the period of the Carboniferous, um, where, as I understand it, the, a lot of organic matter was buried in such a way that I think it was happening at a, at a massive rate, in such a way that we now, in the past 150, 200 years, well, 100 years roughly, have had the fossil fuels um, as a result, because this is all coming from the organic matter that was buried during the Carboniferous. Yeah, the Carboniferous is a, is a really weird chapter of Earth's history. Um, the, the climate um, was relatively warm in, in, in parts of the world, so there was a great deal of, of plant growth and tree growth and these huge, thick, dense forests. But when those trees grew and died and fell over, they refused to rot. Something was preventing trees rotting off they died across large regions of the planet for, for a long period of time. And this ended up building up uh, huge deposits of peat, which became baked deep underground into the coal deposits, which we've been mining since the Industrial Revolution to, to power our society and our civilization. But it has been curiosity as what was it about the Carboniferous that broke the Earth's carbon recycling system, a planetary recycling system for carbon around that time? And again, it looks like this was linked to the presence of Pangaea, the supercontinent, and in particular the formation of Pangaea uh, created lots of low-lying swampy regions where trees would grow uh, prolifically but die and then become buried away from oxygen so they couldn't decompose, they couldn't rot. Interestingly, Similar conditions were created not on land, but on the seafloor in a more recent chapter of Earth's history, the Cretaceous, um, up to about 65 million years ago, where a lot of the oil that we've used in more modern industrial civilization uh, descends from, it was from oxygen-free conditions on the seafloor rather than oxygen-free conditions on the land masses that created the coal. But a huge amount of the energy that we've used for hundreds of years comes from these quirky periods of Earth's history when the planet's recycling system broke down. So I guess, uh, in theory, if, they, if that period of time had, if that hadn't happened for those millions of years, during those millions of years it, in the Carboniferous, in theory, we might not have had the fossil fuels or there might, might not have been the same uh, level of progress over the past hundred years. Yeah, a lot of what we see in the world today is contingent on things that have happened in the past. That the Carboniferous is not the only period in Earth's history when coal is formed, that there are periods before and after the Permian, after the Carboniferous. Um, the, the, the Permian period also saw um, some coal production. But, but it's interesting, I think, to, to think about all that we take for granted in the world today and have done so through history and how those roots spread backwards through time and around the world um for, for the origin of these things that we that we use yeah because uh, you speak of the coal deposits i mean the other very interesting um 
sort of correlation in the book was about the, the congruence of the geological record in the US and in the UK and political voting habits. Mm. So could you maybe talk a, a bit about that? <laughs> this was this is my favorite example from all of the research and writing I, I did for, for Origins was this incredible link between the planetary and political, how, how the earth even seems to have a guiding hand and who you choose and elections and who you want your, your leader to be. And a really good example of this is in the southern states of uh, the US. So you know, sort of, you know, Florida, Alberta, the Carolinas. And this is, is overwhelmingly a Republican area at the moment. But throughout this sea of red, if, if you look at the political map, uh, there is there are there are counties that vote for the Democrats. And in fact, there's there's a pattern to a Democrat voting county in states. Uh, they're found on, on the shores of the Mississippi River, but they're also found along this curious crescent arcing its way through the southern states that doesn't relate to anything you can see in the landscape. It doesn't correlate to a river or match along a line of uh, hills or mountains. And actually, you can start to understand what is driving this voting pattern when you look underground at the geological map. And in the book, in Origins, I show you a geological map of rocks beneath your feet, which are about 85 million years old. And um, against that political map, and, and you can see that close matching, that close correlation. And this comes down to the fact that in that period of Earth's history, uh, during the Cretaceous, the sea levels were much, much higher, and the ocean lapped up right through the middle of mainland North America in this great inland sea. So a lot of the rocks laid down that period were effectively thick, sludgy sediments of seafloor mud, which after millions of years of being buried and compacted and then re-exposed again by erosion, ends up producing a really rich, fertile, thick, black soil, a soil that's really well suited for growing cash crops like cotton, which unfortunately uh, in the mid 1800s, the second half of the 19th century uh, meant slave labor. People were, were kidnapped from the homes in Africa, taken across the Atlantic Ocean, forced to work on plantations, growing cotton along that band of Cretaceous age rocks. And even today, after hundreds of years, after the Civil War, after emancipation and, and freedom from slavery, after the Civil Rights Movement, still today, the greatest densities of Black African-Americans still live along that Cretaceous band of rocks. People who unfortunately still suffer from socioeconomic issues of you know, poor salary, poor education, poor health care, poor opportunities. People who are naturally more likely to vote for Democrat ideals rather than Republican ideals. So, of course, there's, there's no direct link from the rocks to how people vote. They're not being told what to do by the geology, but there is this this long line of cause and effect of one thing leading to the next, reaching back through hundreds of years of human history and then the millions of years of our planet's history. Yeah, it's, it's amazing really, isn't it? And then and the same obviously in the UK, um, as, you, as you point out in the book. Um, yes, the, the pattern in the UK is, is a slightly shorter connection that the, the Labour homelands, the, the, the constituencies that invariably vote for Labour in, in, in any election, and again I show this map in the book, match very very closely with rocks beneath your feet which are about 320 million years old. We've already talked about rocks from that period during the 
the Carboniferous period of Earth's history. Um, so what we're really seeing in that political link there is the fact that the Labour political party grew out of uh, trade unions and specifically coal mining trade unions. But there is this link between a political party and therefore the, the voting map in the UK and the geology beneath our feet. Do you think um, it's likely that hominids would have evolved the way they have? If, if you reset the process, do you think that this was serendipity and random processes uh, produced upright walking hominids? Or do you think that if we reset the process, you could have had something completely different? Well, I guess it depends on how far back through Earth's history go before we hit this, this great big red reset button. If, if you were to go back, you know, a million years already, some, some very capable, very intelligent hominin species in, in East Africa, in the Great Rift Valley, before Homo sapiens came along. If you go back to the very formation of the Earth and run the whole, you know, whole videotape of, of planetary evolution and, and biological evolution on our planet, who knows if, if intelligence would arise again. It's quite hard to explain intelligence because it's such an expensive thing for an animal to, to support, to have a large brain, it's very energetically expensive. So it, it only emerges when it gives you very clear survival advantages. And in our case, in the hominin case, those survival advantages were, uh, were being able to survive in a chaotic environment of, of the Rift Valley. Have you heard of the stoned ape theory? Have you ever heard that one? <laughs> no. Basically, the idea is that uh, some it's kind of bro, uh, bro science, I guess, but the idea yeah. is that the some of these um, hominins, early Australopithecus or whoever, whichever brand of early hominid you want to go with, yeah. found some psychedelic mushrooms somewhere in the savannah and ate these and that influenced the way, opened their minds and allowed them to evolve in a different way. It's called the stoned ape theory. So <laughs> I thought I just mentioned that as well. Um, but yeah, no, I suppose the, the reason I asked that original question is if, with your background in astrobiology, one wonders um, to what extent other planets who might have some variation on the theme of the way that Earth formed, as you correctly pointed out, the four billion, uh, three and a half billion years ago, did you say? Uh, you know, yes, yeah, so, so like four and a half, five billion years ago. Yeah. Um, um, the, the... So I guess the question would be, would you, would you, would that be likely to form in a way such that you could have human-like creatures evolving on other planets eventually based on the geology and geography? If we were an average, say, uh, amongst, you know, right in the bang in the middle of the kind of Goldilocks idea of different potential variations of geology and geography? Yeah, most of the time, uh, astrobiologists are concerned with, you know, sort of simple life, bacterial life on places like Mars or Europa. Um, but we are also finding more and more Earth-like planets orbiting other stars um, in the galaxy, the extra solar planets. And let's imagine that uh, in the coming years, we, we are able to discover a very Earth-like planet orbiting another sun, a true twin of our home world, a place with a thick atmosphere, with a magnetic field, with plate tectonics, with all the sort of attributes of the Earth which we think have been important for the emergence and origin of life in the first place, and then nurturing and protecting that life for billions of years to allow it to evolve to complexity. The question is, would, would you expect intelligence to also evolve on this other Earth-like planet? 
And as I was sort of hinting at earlier, that the jury is still very much out on this. That the, there's no reason to expect that intelligence would be um, a universal of evolution, that it would happen each and every time an Earth-like planet um, has, has life develop on it. There might be a particularly quirky combination of conditions that drive intelligence to human-like levels. But of course, humans aren't the only intelligent species on the, on the planet. There's plenty of very intelligent uh, apes, dolphins, uh, squid, and, and other uh, cephalopods. So it comes down to you know, sort of definitions of, of what you would deem to be uh, high intelligence. Um, and speaking of, of, of Mars, you mentioned Mars and Europa there. Obviously, super exciting uh, developments last night with the, with the, the Mars um, Perseverance. I know that you worked on the European Space Agency's Mars mission, or at least I believe that's the case. Can you tell, tell us a bit about that? I think you worked on a, on a tool that was on, this, on one of the spacecraft. Yeah, in the past, I've been involved in um, the European Space Agency, ESA's next generation Mars rover uh, called ExoMars, which will be launching next year. So we'll be arriving on the red planet a little later than the Americans, the NASA um, and Perseverance. But the, the two rover missions, Perseverance and ExoMars, Rosalind Franklin, have got very similar missions, very similar aims to not only characterize what Mars has once been like, to, to look for evidence for sort of ancient water, um, aqueous environments, things like lake mud, and sort of what are known as phytosilicate minerals, but also to see if signs of life itself have become preserved in these ancient environments, looking for signs of fossilized bacteria or, or sort of chemical fossils. So um, complex chemistry that might have once come from a cell. Um, and we would call these biosignatures, the, these signs of life. So it's a really exciting period right now to be involved in astrobiology to, to be a researcher in this area because it's very very fast-paced not only we're we discovering more and more about life here on earth and the incredible range of conditions that it can survive under we've got these ultra sophisticated robots we're launching to mars and other planets and moons in the solar system and our telescopes are finding more and more earth-like planets across the heavens throughout the, the milky way galaxy so there's this real optimism, this real impression that we might be right on the brink of discovering something very profound, finding that the first evidence of life beyond our own planet, of, of, of simple microbial life. Because I, I remember, I think it was 1997 or 1996, Bill Clinton actually had this big fanfare and gave this big speech about the meteorite, I think it was the Allen Hills yeah, meteorite. And this is so I believe that was a meteorite that landed in the Arctic or Antarctica. I'm not sure where. And it came from Mars and it had some fossils or allegedly had some microbial fossils within it. What, what was the deal with that then? Was that not not actually genuine or was that n not proven clearly enough for that for people to accept? Mm, this was this was a, a, a rock with a very boring name of ALH84001, which is, which is a catalogue number. Um, it kicked off uh, one heck of a debate uh, because it was discovered to have come from Mars. And a group of scientists, research team, convinced themselves through several lines of evidence that there were preserved signs of life, fossilized bacteria inside this meteorite, this, this lump of Mars that had been chipped off and, and flung towards the Earth. But as the story evolved and as, as more and more scientists took their own looks at this rock and thought about what other processes might have created 
those lines of evidence, things like carbonates and, and particular concentrations of elements, it became apparent that yes, they could have been produced by life, but actually other processes, non-biotic, non-living processes could also have created very similar signatures. So it is still ambiguous. No one is saying that that meteorite doesn't contain signs of life. No one's saying that we've proven that there isn't life on Mars. We've just had to conclude, we've just had to concede that that particular meteorite doesn't contain convincing evidence. And this is why we're trying to hedge our bets by going to Mars ourselves, or at least by sending our robotic explorers to give ourselves the best possible chance of finding the right kind of rocks and the right kind of environments and analyzing the right kind of way um, to find the signs of life, which we hope might be there. And how do you think it will Obviously, it's going to be a very historic event when they, if and mm. when they finally confirm 100% that they've got the, the probably very ancient microbial fossils, I guess. Um, how do you think that will transpire? Do you think that could be, um, I know that this Mars Perseverance um, robot is going to take course, uh, I don't know if there's the right word, but core samples and drop them on the surface of Mars and they'll be collected in 10 years time. Do you think that's the way that we will determine and that will that be the breakthrough where they formally announce, okay, there is life outside of the earth? Yeah, it'd, it'd be wonderful if the instruments that the scientific equipment on board Perseverance Rover were able to make, you know, unambiguous ironclad proof, incontrovertible evidence that they'd found life on the surface of Mars. That would be amazing. But what's much, much more likely is the samples that Perseverance is going to collect and then kind of like put in its backpack, leave on the surface of Mars for a subsequent mission, a later mission to land nearby, pick up that cache of samples and then launch them all the way back to Earth in what's known as a sample return mission. The idea being that you can do a great deal more science using all the laboratories and all the instruments around the world to study samples of Mars rock rather than trying to miniaturize everything and put it on a Mars rover and, and send it to, to do in situ to do on Mars. I suspect that we're more likely to get the evidence that's convincing from that sample return by bringing these pieces of Mars back to the Earth and then studying them with laboratories here. Um, other scientists would make the argument that the best chance we'd have for finding signs of life on Mars is by sending human astronauts there. The idea being that a, a trained geologist, a trained astrobiologist walking around in a spacesuit from, from their base on Mars could do more before breakfast than an ultra sophisticated robot could do in two or three years of its mission. Because humans are so much more versatile and capable and can cover much more ground and, and just use our intelligence to recognize something that we see that looks out of place, that looks promising, and then you know, study that close up, rather than trying to do everything remotely, do everything virtually through the eyes of, of a robot. Um, yeah, that's, that's another thing, a great thing about being an astrobiologist, right? It seems like every year you become more in demand or more uh, <laughs> very much future-proofed, right? <laughs> because if you think about it, 30 years ago, people were very skeptical about uh, about all this kind of uh, you know the, the fact that there could be life outside of away from the earth um and as the the time has gone on you know people are more and more accepting of this right so and then once they do formally formally confirm if and when hopefully you know they, they discover that, that there was life on mars that's obviously incredibly important um to then extrapolate 
what might be out there in the rest of the you know that there more might be life might be more commonplace throughout the universe yeah i, I think you're right i think astrobiology is is something of a growth industry it is going from strength to strength at the moment and and the, the old joke as well is that if you're an astrobiologist and someone's paying for you to look for for life elsewhere maybe don't find it too quickly <laughs> maybe <laughs> yes, maybe take your time to, to look for it and, and, and keep keep the cash yeah. those are the you know sort of conspiracy theories about uh, not announcing things uh, too quickly um, and in terms of where, do you think they could, there could be some bacterial life then under the surface of Mars? Yeah, so the, the very surface of Mars is a pretty unpleasant place to find yourself. It's exceedingly cold, it's exceedingly dry, um, it's bathed in radiation from the sun, ultraviolet rays, UV rays, as well as being bombarded by uh, particle radiation from, from outer space. So anything on the very surface of Mars is almost certainly sterilized, dead, destroyed, beyond recognition. And so the hope would be to get deep underground where something had been shielded and protected. And what's particularly exciting about this ESA mission, the ExoMars rover that's launching next year, is that rather than you know, a coring device or uh, something that can get an inch or two into, into, into a rock, as NASA rovers have done so far, the ExoMars rover will have a two meter long drill on board. It's gonna be able to get a substantial distance underground beneath the Martian surface and hopefully grab handfuls of Martian dirt, of Martian soil that have been protected and therefore hopefully preserved what biosignatures they, they might have hold. So that's the one you're, you're working on, Lewis, or you that you. That's the one I've been involved in. Yeah, so I'm not currently funded to, to work on uh, XMR science, but within astrobiology and the, the sort of biosignatures I, I work on, it, it's all relevant to, to different Mars missions. And with if you if we were to go back, I believe it's billions of years in terms of Mars when there could have been life there. Do you think there was just microbial life, or do you think in these vast rivers and lakes and and oceans? that there could have been something multicellular on uh, on Mars? No, Mars has is, is almost certainly been populated by nothing more than, than bacteria, by, by germs, by, by single-celled bacteria. The, the environment wasn't clement and hospitable on the surface in these surface lakes or rivers for long enough for evolution to have an opportunity to get into more complex forms of life, like, like multicellular life. Mm. But if we're looking out uh, across the solar system, there are good reasons to be at least hopeful that maybe Europa, which is one of the icy moons of Jupiter, and we know there's a, a great ocean beneath its frozen surface, that potentially there might be simple multicellular life in the European ocean. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, things like um, jellyfish or things like that in this, in this alien ocean. Wow, that's incredible. Okay. Um you probably heard um, Harvard physicist Avi Loeb. I don't know if you know of him. Uh, he's been talking a lot recently <clears throat> about the the um, asteroid that was called Umeamea, Umuamua, which was coming through in 2017 from into our solar system from outside of uh, the galaxy, apparently, or outside of the solar system. Outside the solar system, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> outside of the solar system, thank you. Um, now, what's your take on this? Because obviously it had some very um, extraordinary characteristics. Did you, he, he suggest, he, he's kind of on one side of the spectrum. He believes that it could be, you know, some sort of uh, waste product from, a, from an artificial, uh, you know, alien civilization somewhere. 
did you investigate that at all? And uh, yeah, so your take. What is interesting about this object is when it was discovered, it was found to be moving very, very fast. It was moving too fast to be held by the gravity of the sun. So we, we knew immediately it was an interstellar interloper. It would come from outside the solar system and was just passing through, as it were. And when we observed it with telescopes, something else odd was discovered about it is that it's incredibly elongated. It's not roughly spherical. It's not sort of potato-shaped like many other comet uh, or asteroid bodies are. It's, it's almost like a flat slab that's tumbling its way through space. So it's, it's, it has got some curious and interesting uh, properties of it. But it's also true to say there is no evidence whatsoever that this is some interstellar craft built by extraterrestrial aliens. Um, Avi Loeb has got a new book out and he's been on the publicity tour. And one of the ways that he's been promoting this book is by pushing hard on his his theory that this is an interstellar artifact and that he is claiming that he's being sort of ostracized by the astronomical community people have got closed minds they're blinkered they're refusing to look at the evidence that this might be extraterrestrial or sorry an extraterrestrial artifact built by by intelligent aliens and, and i just don't think that is the case and I, I think the astronomical community would be very very excited if there's convincing evidence um, of, of life elsewhere, of intelligent life elsewhere. But it's also true to say that this object is not convincing evidence. It's got some curious properties. There's nothing particularly suspicious about it that would lead you to believe that, that it's an alien artifact. Wishful thinking, I guess. Yeah. I, I think so, yeah. <laughs> um, so you, you've done a great job in, in Origins, obviously, as we, as we discussed, of explaining the historic role of the planet and the environment in shaping human history. You spent a lot of time obviously working on that. What did that give you any insights into what the future could hold in terms of uh, for humanity? Yeah, so a lot of the, the story I tell in Origins is how features of the planet have deeply influenced our human story, our emergence as a species, and then the thousands of years of, of human civilization and modern politics and, and modern history and how that's been influenced by features of the world we live on. But more recently, since the Industrial Revolution, humans have become so powerful as an animal species with, with our technology uh, and particularly our industry that we are now starting to change and alter on a global scale. You know, clearly with things like our CO2 pollution and climate change and all of our mining um, and acidifying of, of the oceans. And so the future of humanity is gonna be largely a future that we've created for ourselves. And a lot of that has been inadvertent. We, we haven't intended to start degrading the environment so badly, but, but nonetheless, that's what's happened. And interestingly, the, the problem that we're facing at the moment with global warming and climate change from pumping out so much CO2 is effectively a problem that was an unintended consequence of the solution that we tried to find to the previous problem, which was running out of energy, running out of firewood, running out of timber that we could chop down across Europe to fuel our society, to run our kilns and our furnaces. And that's when we hit upon the idea of digging underground to these ancient fossilized forests from the Carboniferous, the coal that we started burning. And so I've got every, every confidence, every hope that we've created this problem effectively because of our own intelligence, and we will be able to use that capability and that intelligence to solve this problem as well, to, to prevent 
the climate changing too badly from, from global warming and to start bringing online technologies like fusion, but also just basic stuff we already understand will be part of the solution to, to not fly so much, to, to you know, build more efficient houses that, that are better insulated and all the stuff we're all already familiar with. These are all parts of the solution. You know, there's not one magic bullet. It's a whole jigsaw puzzle of parts that need to come together. But we can, we can also understand what's likely to lie in our future by looking to our past. And the natural episode in Earth's history, which is most like what we are doing artificially through human activity today, is known as the Paleocene Eocene Thermal Maximum, the PETM. And this is a basically a brief fever of the planet about 55.5 million years ago when global temperatures leapt upwards, lurched upwards by five to eight degrees Celsius. And that's what we're looking down the barrel of now. That, that's the worst case scenario we would hope to try, to try to prevent. But by understanding the PETM and what caused it and what happened, it helps inform us um, and what to do now. Well, I guess, I guess obviously the hope is that um, this great evolution of and uh, the, the, the way humans have learned to use their intelligence to adapt and overcome will allow us to, you know, th that will ex um, happen at such a pace that the, the, the damage that we're causing will be outdone by the technological advances. I know that Elon Musk has put um, $100 million up for anyone who can create, uh, I believe it's the best carbon uh, removal system. So to remove carbon from the atmosphere uh, in an effective way. So I guess it's things like that will, which perhaps will help us to resolve some of these. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. And then Elon Musk has been part of, of, of another part of the solution jigsaw puzzle, which is, you know, sort of electric cars and, and reducing our dependence on fossil fuels and internal combustion engine. But being also, we, we already have a technology which is exceedingly good at removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and, and it's trees. So I, I think the solution isn't always to look to high technology, but to look to, to more basic answers as well. No, you're right. That's a good, and you mentioned that very, um, it was kind of, I should have known, but the, the mollusks that collect CO2 and go down and end up at the bottom of the sea, sea floor. But the, uh, uh, if I understand correctly, they also take a lot of it out, right? Yes, it's a part of the Earth's natural thermostat if you like, it's called the carbonate silicate cycle. And that's a natural way of removing CO2 out of the atmosphere and sort of burying it deep on, on the seafloor. Um, and, and, you know, linking back to the astrobiology and, and different planets, that's part of the reason why Venus has become so hot, because that natural check and balance on its climate broke down. Um, yes, well, is it Venus where the phosphine um, was found? There was um, another place where there was there, were, there was some phosphine that was discovered. I thought it was Venus, but anyway, it was, it was Venus. Yeah, um, that <laughs> as 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 happens in, in science, that has not been backed up by further studies. Um, so it's looking increasingly likely that the detection of phosphine in Venus that, were, that was reported last year um, was probably artifactual i.e. it's not really there, it was just a, an errant signal in the, in the telescope data. Really? Oh, shame, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a pity, and, and even if it were there, there was no guarantee that phosphine was a product of life. You know, it's a very complex story. Um, yeah. It's a bit like the, 
the wow signal. So I don't know if you heard about that. The uh, back in I think it was 1977, they had an early version of SETI, and they were looking and they saw this hydrogen signal, and they were thinking that came from some extraterrestrial or far away um, star solar system. And uh, and in fact, uh, it, it's probably more likely again that it was a false uh, false positive, and it actually just came from some local Earth. Um, whether it was a microwave or whatever. Yeah, exactly. exactly. The, the, the wow signal was almost certainly interference or you know radio emission from, from the Earth uh, because it, it's never repeated. People have been listening to it since and, it, and it's not never not once repeated. Because I guess that's the most likely way. There are, they'll either, as you say, find microbial life as, as you, yourself and your colleagues are, are working on, or maybe they'll see some signal from very, very far uh, away in the universe, which obviously will be almost tantalizingly or, or frustratingly tantalizing because we won't be able to determine anything beyond that because of the sheer time that these kind of messages take to get get here and back um, well yes yeah, so, so astrobiology is is partly sending robots to mars and, and checking our own front doorstep if there's bacterial life in the solar system but we could also detect signs of life in earth-like planets elsewhere in our galaxy but by, by telescopes but even if we were to find, for example, oxygen and methane in the atmosphere of an Earth-like world, the frustration out of that might be, well, we're confident, we're pretty sure there's life there, but it's, it's so far away, we can't send a probe there. It would take hundreds of years to send a probe to this planet and, and try to get a closer look. So at the moment, astrobiology is very, very exciting, and we might make a, a truly profound discovery It'll be on the front page of every newspaper on the planet, you know, Earth-like world discovered, Good evidence for life there but but then what we'd have to wait hundreds of years to descend a, a probe to get a closer look uh wait and sorry to wait hundreds of years the reason being because of the di the distance the sheer distance you mean Lewis? It, it, exactly once you start getting out the solar system and start trying to travel interstellar distances and you're talking about you know light years and light years and light years away it's these are very very long distances and uh, hypothetically if Elon Musk came up with a super luminal spacecraft and you did discover this Earth-like tropical planet, would you, uh, would you be signing up for that or would you? Uh, what... <laughs> personally, personally, I would not. I'm, I'm quite happy with all my mod cons and my life on Earth. Uh, and I don't think I'd be signing up to any mission to Mars either. I'm, I'm quite, quite content, Mario. Thank you very much. Well, yeah, Mars especially seems very uh, inhospitable and very, uh, I certainly wouldn't like, like to spend too much time there. Um, I know Elon Musk said he wants to die on Mars, but I just, I would have thought that could happen fairly quickly if you, uh, if you weren't. Was it? Yeah, so the, the second half Elon Musk's uh, quote is, 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 is quite humorous. It's, uh, he'd like to die on Mars, just not on impact. No, well, so he'd, he'd like to he'd like to get to Mars safely and then basically retire there, live out the rest of his natural life, you know, five, ten years, however, however old he is, um, and, and do that on Mars rather than on Earth. Um, Lewis, I, I realize I've taken up a, a lot of your time here. So, um, final, uh, just quick um, question. So you you're originally from Kenya. So you were you born in Kenya? Was that is that correct? No. So I was born in the UK, but my um father before he retired was uh, an engineer for british airways he, he, he'd fix up 747s and then send them back uh, to heathrow so we, we spent most of my early years living around the world in different um different countries so i was almost born in saudi arabia spent my toddler years in dubai was at prep school as i mentioned already in, in nairobi um, the family went to, to bahrain after that so I, I spent some time in prep school in Kenya, some time in boarding school back in the UK while the family was, was overseas. Right. But, because, um, yeah, say because, again, sorry? 
my folks were in Kenya from, I think it was 1970, 1969 to 1974. Uh, so it would have been before, I'm very sure it would have been before your yes. time. Yes. But I was almost born there as well. So they, oh, there you go. Yeah, my dad was in the Peace Corps. So uh, yeah. but anyway, it's, it's interesting now that you're back talking about East Africa um, <laughs> and, and that's where you started out as well. So uh, yeah, exactly. It's come full circle. Full circle. Brilliant. Well, Lewis, thank you so much. That was really fascinating. And uh, I loved your both, both of your books, uh, Origins and the Knowledge. So uh, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. I'll let you get on with your, your Friday evening. Thank you so much, Lewis. <laughs> Thanks ever so much, Ben. Cheers. Bye-bye. Awesome. Thanks very much, everyone, for tuning in. I really appreciate you. Thanks very much to Lewis. Have a great day. Recorded live.